Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's first reading comes from Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Our next reading comes from Matthew. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Sam, that was one of the manliest readings of Scripture. (laughs) Just like testosterone around the pulpit now. Man. Well, these texts from Ezekiel and from Matthew address a question for us. And the question is, what kind of community will will we be as the people of God? That's what we're going to explore today. But I want to give you a heads up now that this is a conversation that we're going to revisit in a different way in a couple of weeks. Um, On October 1st, we're going to have a a Vision Sunday where we're looking at what kind of people are we intending to be, hoping to be, reaching to be as the people of Cornerstone in the years to come. Uh, January marks seven years that we've been a church. We launched January 21st, 2018, uh, which feels a very long time ago and feels not very long ago at all. And there was a time when all of the people who comprised Cornerstone could fit scrunched into a single pew. And we were having conversations then about wanting to be a church that's strategically small, which is easy to say when you're literally small. Um, And we've grown. The Lord has blessed uh, our church. So on October 1st, we're going to explore those questions of of where are we going? Who do we want to be? We've talked about things like church planting and multiplication. Is that still in the conversation? Whatever happened to being strategically small? Um, I I do not like hype in the church world. In fact, I've instructed the people on our staff who oversee our social media that I don't want to see anything that looks like, hey, Cornerstone Nation, here's the big event coming up. That's like the opposite of my philosophy of ministry right there. Is this hand gesture. That's not John Adam. (laughs) 
I don't like hype in church world, but I will tell you, October 1st will be an important conversation for our church. If Cornerstone is your home church, I hope that you will be here to, to uh, explore that conversation together, Vision Sunday. So this passage in Matthew 18 is one that many well-intentioned people in the church have bungled very badly. In wanting to handle conflict or sin in the church seriously, we've often mishandled people in the process. And, you know, you've maybe heard the language of churches having like a, a, a bunch of people behind the bus of the church or, or, or casualties of church ministry. And I think, oh, man, we, we can do so much better. This passage in Matthew 18 will be wrongly applied as an instrument of retribution uh, against the one who sins. But the spirit of this passage, this passage will be rightly applied when it's used as an instrument of rehabilitation of reconciliation. That's the goal of this passage, is restored relationship among those who are disciples of Jesus. The goal of confrontation is a theme within the church. When someone sins against you and confronting them on that, the goal is never scolding. The goal is never shaming. The goal is not merely to make so sure someone knows that they're in the wrong. No, the goal is restoration and unity whenever possible. Now, in Ezekiel, God speaks to the prophet and gives the people this metaphor of a watchman. I picture someone standing on the walls of a castle and they're looking in the distance in all directions and wondering, uh, they're, they're paying attention in case some threatening army from afar is going to come and attack them. The watchman is given not to be an alarmist in a negative way. The watchman is given not merely to freak people out, but the, the watchman is there to spare the people from unnecessary suffering. And God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, is warning his people that there is danger coming if they don't pay attention. But by sending the watchman, God is sending his mercy to them. He's giving grace to them because he wants them to be spared. Verse 11 of Ezekiel 33, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather, what do I take pleasure in? That they turn from their ways and live. As God is speaking through the, the watchman, Ezekiel, and speaks to us through the scriptures, God's intentions for us are that we may turn from our ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, the passage says. Why will you die? Why will you refuse to heed the call of the watchman, people of Israel? In a similar way, Jesus in his teaching is making all of us watchmen and watchwomen. We're meant to be alert observers to those things that threaten our unity, that lead us away from the path of flourishing. And sometimes those threats come from within the community, and sometimes they come from the outside of the community. But Jesus' intention, and this is mind-boggling when you think about the division, the divided nature of the church, Jesus' intention is that among those who follow him that there would be such unity among us but as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that we might be one as he and the Father are one. Now, uh, the, you, you're always going to get into heresy when you're trying to describe the Trinity. It's very difficult not to because we're describing a mystery. 
But I, you're going to err into heresy by compromising the, the three-personed nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or by compromising the unity, the oneness within the Godhead. Similarly, Jesus wants us, all of those who are, who are a part of the body of Christ here at Cornerstone, but, but all over the world, to be so one that we might be described as being similar to the oneness, the unity between Jesus and the Father. And so in order to have that kind of unity, we have to exercise constant vigilance against those habits of the heart and those habits of the life that threaten our unity and that undermine our flourishing. Now, a big challenge for us in thinking about this topic of, of church unity is that unlike Jesus' first hearers, we are natives of an individualistic society. We think of ourselves as individuals. We, we strike out on our own course. We go to the beat of our own drummer. Um, and, and when the communities to which we belong experience some kind of hardship or conflict, whether it's a local church or it's your friend group or it's your small group or it's the community that surrounds the school that you're a part of or your sport team, when the communities to which we belong have discord or disharmony, because we've been trained to be individuals, many of us opt to leave the institution. We choose to ghost the people or protest in place. And by that, I mean we stay, but we quietly seethe. We stay and, and we, we allow that disharmony to grow and grow and grow, and it never goes confessed. There may be people in the room who have beef with others in the room, and they would never guess that anyone has an issue with them because we don't express it. We quietly resent them. I think if you have to explain why is this the case, well, for some of us, we do this because we don't deem those communities or the idea of being part of a community something that's worth contending for, something that's worth fighting for. Or probably many more of us are just so conflict-averse, so conflict-avoidant that we would sooner be lonely or cut off than deal with the discomfort of working through the very normal funk, F-U-N-K, that comes from being a part of a community. Now, sometimes those communities are just really, really unsafe. Sometimes to like lean into conflict in a community can be a dangerous thing to do. To lean in is to get your head chopped off because those people have unhealthy practices. They've been habituated into dysfunctional behaviors, and so they can't be trusted with the pearl of your efforts. But many, many times, we cut off. We're the ones who initiate our separation from the community because we've been trained to construct our identities apart from those communities. Now, I, I hope that you, if you've been a part of the church, I hope that you know my heart. Those of you who may be new may not know me well enough. I, I don't mean to be provocative in what I'm about to say, but merely, merely illustrative. One way that I'm seeing in our world right now this, the individualistic nature of our times is a person who chooses a new name for themselves. And it struck me a couple of years ago how strange it is. My name is Jonathan, by the way, Jonathan Franklin Odom. I did not choose that name. Odom, what a weird last name, Odom. Now think about giving that last name to Emily, Emily Odom, does that work? Odom, it's a strange name, but it struck me a couple of years ago, I didn't choose any of those names for myself. 
it's one of the most, like, core things about me is I'm Jonathan. I'm John Odom. And that very core thing about me, other people chose for me. And isn't that interesting? That there's something about the fact that a person chose a name for you that socially imprints you. And whether the people who gave you your name were, were a, a good parent or a bad parent or a present person, a present parent or an absent parent, you were still socially imprinted because someone else chose your name. And even when our families of origins don't function the way that God intended to, it still gives us a signal, a sign that we are hardwired for community. That just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally exists in community, we are meant to live in community. We are socially marked. Now, in the world of Jesus and his disciples, your communal identity was everything. The family to which you belonged, your, your father's name, your grandfather's name, your great-grandfather's name would have been known by all of the people who know you. Uh, the, the fact that you belonged to a trade guild or a tribe or an ethnic group or a religious group was very significant to your own sense of self in the world. Your group affiliation meaningfully contributed to the things that you chose to do vocationally in the world, the trade that you picked up, but also your overall sense of self and your purpose and your place in the world. Now, what's interesting is that the, the hyper-individualistic nature of, of our world, our modern world now, has also seeped into the church. And one of the main downfalls of like the modern church or modern evangelicalism is that in our efforts to convince people to make a decision to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we've left out, we've omitted how that decision, how our baptism then ushers us into a community of disciples. You think that this is you yourself and you alone making an individual relationship to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you didn't know that you inherited a family in the transaction. Uh, Brian Stone wrote a book a number of years ago called Evangelism After Christendom. In the book, he said that salvation is effectively a peopling process, that it's not merely you getting right with God, but it also entails our getting right with others. We're born into a new family. We're ushered into a community of disciples. Scott McKnight picks this up, uh, similar themes in his book, The King Jesus Gospel. He said, most of evangelism, sharing the gospel with others, is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. The apostles, however, were obsessed with making disciples. Evangelism that focuses on decisions, short circuits, and yes, the word is appropriate, aborts the design of the gospel. While evangelism that aims at disciples slows down to offer the full gospel of Jesus and the apostles. Now, McKnight's point here is that the church has treated discipleship as an optional extra. But along the way, he also affirms that we aren't merely trying to convert others to a new faith, but to connect them with a new family. That baptism is a social marker. I think it was Connor who, who prayed about Otis joining God's family in his baptism, and that's right on. You think about the baptism of Jesus as he emerged from the waters, the Spirit descended, and the Father says, you are my son. 
that I love, with you I am well pleased. His baptism was a social marker, and so is ours. In our baptism, we inherit our identity, and we become part of a family. And this family has distinct values and practices. And one of those practices, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, is that when there is conflict in the family, when someone sins against you, we talk about it. We don't let it fester. Hebrews chapter 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. I happen to think that there's a lot of realism in this passage. Can you always live at peace with all people? Man, I wish I could. Some of the, some of the deep wounds in my heart from life and from ministry are those times when I couldn't live at peace with everyone. But he says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. No bitter root. We don't let things fester. We name beef in the church. When I say beef, I mean conflict. Now, what, we, what folks typically do is they're like, oh, I'm going to go seek wisdom from other people in the church about how to handle this. And 10 people know that I've got an issue with you before the person, before like you find out. The, the model of Jesus here is that when we have a conflict with a person, we go to the one who has wronged us or when we perceive that they've wronged us. And we do everything we can to work things out privately. We need to take seriously, remembering the intentions of Jesus for the church, that we may be one as he and the Father are one. We need to take seriously those things that threaten our unity and our harmony. He says if one-on-one efforts fail, there's the groundwork for bringing in others. But we don't bring in others to, to pile on the guilt. We do it because we need help, because our intention is restoration. And Jesus teaches us, that where there is genuine repentance, there should be generous forgiveness. Uh, y'all would do really well to read all of Matthew 18 to make sense of this portion of Matthew 18. But, but it's here in Matthew 18 that someone asks, well, how many times should I forgive somebody who wrongs me? Like, I don't know, six or seven times? No, seven, 70 times seven, a lot of times. Generous. It's, he's like, he could have said infinity times. Where there is genuine repentance, there can be generous forgiveness. He tells the whole parable of the unforgiving servant at the end of this chapter. But if after individual and communal efforts to strive for reconciliation fail, if after all of that it doesn't work out, there's a failure to repent. Or, and this is where some of us have had some crazy-making life experiences, If that repentance is tied to promises to change, but never leads to new practices that result in real change, it can result in a break of fellowship. And Jesus says, treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. Woo, harsh. But then we have to think about how Jesus treats pagans and tax collectors. Well, certainly... There's a breach in relational status. There's, there's a change in relational status. That because of this failure to repent, or maybe it's been endless promises to repent and change, but never like actually changing, there's a break in relationship. There is a change of status. But Jesus is merciful. 
Jesus longs for the pagan and the tax collector to be brought into the family. Think how ironic that Matthew, the tax collector, is writing down this very story for us. How has Jesus treated him? He's taken the relationship with Matthew as far as he's willing to let it go. There is a change in the relational status. You're not connected in the same way, but it's full of compassion. It's on a trajectory as far as it depends on me toward peace and toward restoration. As far as it depends on us, we don't want it to get to a place where there is a severance. There's a cutting off of our relationship. Quickly, what I'd like to do in the last couple of minutes is to give some counsel on ways that we can have these difficult conversations in the church. And I want to give a little advice to those who are confronting others, trying and with good intention to obey the teachings of Jesus. I want to speak to those of us who find ourselves at times on the other sides of those confrontations. And then I also want to, to show you a way that's even better, that's not reactive, but proactive with dealing with sin, with conflict, with immaturity in the church. So to begin with, when confronting others. When I think about confronting others, we, we start with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived. He's the most brilliant whole human that's ever existed. And Jesus knows how to navigate relationships. And Jesus says, in a relationship with somebody else, if you feel this inclination to go pull the speck out of someone else's eye, first start by examining the log that may be in your own eye. So rather, you see them as the problem. Their behavior is clearly the issue. But Jesus says, like, pump the brakes. Let's start with the, the consideration that there could be a bigger issue in you and with you that you are not taking responsibility for. Consider in this conflict that you have with this person, what, what contributions have you made to the unhealth? Consider how you could be off in your interpretation of the events. I think it's really helpful to communicate your goal. Honestly, I find these conversations quite difficult. I hate them very much. I would prefer not to have them. I'm learning to get better at them, but they stink. I think it's helpful as we're beginning to communicate your intentions. Say, hey, I'm not comfortable with this kind of conversation, but you're so important to me. Our relationship is so important that I want to kind of awkwardly fumble my way through it because I want to be close to you, and I don't want there to be any, like, bitter root between us. Communicate your goal. My teammate on staff, Ashley Osborne, is very wise, very pastoral, and she just presented to our staff kind of a framework for making sense of the conflicts that naturally arise between people. And she said, in, in conflict, there's always some kind of precipitating event. Something happens. And then in response to that event, we have a story that we tell ourselves. The story is, here's how I'm making sense of what I've just experienced, the event that I've just gone through. Based on that story, our interpretation of events, we have very natural feelings. Some of you are probably more sophisticated in your feelings. For me, my feelings are generally like, complete shutdown or anger. <laughs> There's not a ton of diversity. You have to really work to figure out what I'm feeling. But we have a precipitating event. We've got a story we tell ourselves. We have feelings that naturally arise. And from the seedbed of those feelings, we have the way that we react to that person. And the, the thing that Ashley pointed out to us, which is just so helpful, is asking ourselves the question, is the story I'm telling myself accurate? 
So, you know, two people will look at a work of art and have completely different interpretations. Two people will live through an experience simultaneously and experience it, interpret it in very different ways. There's the precipitating event, there's the story we tell ourselves, the feelings we feel about the story and then our natural reaction. It's really helpful to ask the question, is the story I'm telling myself accurate? It's probably apocryphal, I don't know if, it's, if this is true, but there's a story of a guy who goes down, gets on the subway in New York, and he's there quietly reading his paper, and this dude gets on the subway, he's got three or four kids that are unhinged. And the kids are bouncing off the wall, they're spinning around on the poles, they're running up and down and yelling, and the dad is sitting there aloof, appears to be totally disinterested in what his kids are doing. And our guy sitting on the subway there is telling himself a story. This is a terrible father. I mean, is this guy like not going to do anything to rein in his children? I'm going to put him in it. Like he needs to hear that this is not acceptable. He begins telling himself a story, feeling outrage on the inside, and it's provoking him to a reactive state where he's going to call out this dad. And the dad volunteers, hey, I'm so sorry for the kids. They've just lost their mother. And we've just come from the hospital, and I'm reeling, and they don't know what to make of it. Well, all of a sudden, when the story is shifted to, to more accurately reflecting reality, our guy has a totally different interpretation of events. Instead of outrage and scorn and disgust, he's feeling empathy and compassion. It changes the way that he wants to treat this person. This is a guy that doesn't need to be scolded, but a guy that needs to be helped. When confronting others, it's really helpful to leave open the possibility that you could be wrong in your interpretation of events. That's why it's helpful to say things like, the story I'm telling myself is dot, dot, dot. But I do want to emphasize we don't have to do that to the point of martyrdom. It's okay to let others know, I feel affected by your choices. It's okay to let others know how you experienced them. And you may learn that you're wrong or misinterpreting things along the way, but it's okay to express. And Jesus said this should be a normal part of the behavior of the church. When someone sins against you, you do something about it. Things to consider when confronting others. Would you rather be confronted or confront someone else? It's a false choice. They're both terrible. (laughs) But they're both part of our life. So what about when you're on the getting confronted side of things? I think it's important to recognize that if someone is confronting you, they care about you. Now, there are some jerks out there. There are some people who just, they want you to be wrong. But generally speaking, you can sniff those people out. If someone who you know loves you chooses to confront you about something, Recognize they're taking a significant relational risk. Recognize they don't want to be doing this. Now, there's some of those people who, you know, the DSM-5 would like, have something to say about, uh, who really like just, you know, like poking the box. But most people really, really, really don't want to have those confrontational conversations. And the fact that they're doing it means that they value unity with you. They, they care about you. That your relationship matters enough that it's worth taking a risk for. And it's probably something that they've thought about for a really long time. So though you just experienced the pitch, the wind-up for them has been coming for a while. 
So because it's something that none of us want to do, we should seek to understand. We should give them the benefit of the doubt and consider there's a possibility that they're actually right in the thing that they're saying and I have an opportunity to grow and to learn. We ought, the, the path of wisdom would commend us to seek to understand before we seek to defend. Now, sometimes when a person confronts you, like if you listen, if you really listen and pay attention, sometimes their confrontation is really not about you, it's really about them. That they're expressing in an awkward way or in an accusatory way that there was a, a, a desire that went unmet. There was an expectation that perhaps was not vocalized that, that, wasn't, that you didn't do for them. Or it could be that they, they're having a bad day. It could be that they've got other things on their minds and, and almost like a wounded animal lashing out at you, there's another wound that's causing them to be um, caustic. Sometimes their confrontation is really about them. But I think we should assume that most of the time it really is about you or it is about us and we need to pay attention and be curious. Especially if it's coming from me, but probably from others, the delivery won't always be perfect. Sometimes the delivery is going to stink. Sometimes the message makes you feel things that you don't like. And as people lack skills in having these kind of crucial conversations, they'll do it in ways that have little barbs to them. It may be unpleasant, but I'm so impressed by the example of um, Tim Keller, who just went to be with the Lord. Keller was a public figure. If you ever aspire to be like a public figure or a celebrity of any nature, just see how people talk to celebrities on social media, even Christian celebrities like Keller, and you will quickly change your mind that you do not want to do that. But Keller was publicly ridiculed by tons and tons of people, and he took it like a champ, finding where where something was true in their criticism about them. This part I agree with, this part I disagree with. You're right in this thing about me. I have an opportunity to learn or to sharpen my point. Resist the urge when being confronted to change the focus of the conversation to the person confronting you. That's an immature behavior. Instead, ask yourself, even if they have unreasonable expectations of you, ask yourself, what am I responsible for in this situation? And the gospel should train us more than anybody else on planet Earth to be ones who can readily say, I'm sorry. We say I'm sorry all the time in our house because we're just constantly stepping on each other's toes, literally and figuratively. And to live in harmony with other people while being realistic about the things that drive us nuts about each other from time to time and pretty frequently requires us to say, I'm sorry. And we need to learn the art of being good apologizers. I'm sorry that I action verb and I take responsibility for that. I find that these conversations, at least in my life and in my observation, go best when the conversations are in person. I, in my cowardice at times, have, have done what you've done and tried to have these things over text or over email, and they just go best in person when you can hear a voice, when you can see a face. These conversations tend to go best when you're really confident this person is for me. If they're not sure that, they're, that you're for them, it might feel like a personal attack. These conversations tend to go best when in life, and generally everything goes best in life, when we're cultivating a light and buoyant spirit, where we can be lighthearted. We don't take ourselves too seriously. 
We've not cultivated the kind of environment around us that's full of gassy fumes. And man, it just takes a spark and everything explodes. They go best when we're cultivating a light spirit. And, and, and when we're a person who wants to be well, we're willing to receive the rebuke and the correction of a friend in places where we aren't doing so well. These, these conversations tend to go very poorly when they're in written form. Now, if you're, getting to the level, if you're getting to the place where lawyers are submitting things in written form, sometimes conflict gets to that place and you need that clarity. But between friends, between spouses, in the church, it, it just doesn't go real well in written form. Um, probably many of you have had the experience of you get a text from someone that's kind of Barbie. I don't mean like the doll. I mean it has barbs on it. Like maybe, you know, just Barbie. And, uh, and you're like, I wonder what they meant by that. I remember a friend in the church sent me a text that just, man, I thought he was being mean. I thought he was being really rude to me. And I brought this up in person. Linda, it was you. It was you. <laughs> you were laughing from a guilty conscience. I could tell. I could tell. It wasn't Linda. I'm joking. And I brought it up to this dude in person. And he's like, oh my gosh, I had, that's not even a little bit the way that I intended that. These things just don't go well in written form. Uh, it's, it's amazing that uh, being like six and a half years in as a church, um, I've not received a ton of grouchy emails over the years, which is great. Maybe the rest of the staff have and they're shielding me. I don't know. It was funny in the middle, in the very beginning of COVID, maybe it's like May or June of 2020, we did a survey asking people, you know, what's your readiness to open up kids' classes while we worship outside? And um, we got this one anonymous survey where a dude said, I can't believe you're still, you know, not worshiping in the building, and our old church is doing that, so we're going back to them. It's like, all right, go in peace. <laughs> but the four, five, six times in my memory that there's been just a rude or a caustic email that's come through, it's, it's been bizarre because it's just not the culture of our church. And I would just request to you, I, I'm not always going to do this perfectly, though I will try. I'm going to request to you that in, in the church as a whole and with your apprentice group and with friendships via email, via text, via Instagram comments, that you don't try to resolve any big conflict uh, or, or deal with anything that online that would be better to do in person. Uh, you know, I, as, I, as I point this out, I'm aware that most of my emails begin with the phrase, please forgive my, deli my delayed reply. But in as much as we can control it, it's so cruel to ghost people in the church. Do you know what I mean when I say ghost people? I mean, they've texted you and put themselves out there and you just never respond. Or they email you or they call you and you just never respond. It's cruel. We mustn't treat each other like that in the church. Just honor one another. These conversations go poorly in written form. They, they go poorly when we're chronically serious, when everything, we're the most easily offended people on planet Earth, when everything is life or death, there's no playfulness or bounce, and things go poorly when we don't believe the best. It will be awkward. If it's coming from me, I'll tell you it's going to be awkward, but I'm going to try my best. It will be awkward. It will not always go great. In other words, it may not always be easy, but because our unity matters, this is the kind of stuff that we have to work through. This is the kind of stuff that we have to actually lean into if we want the kind of community that's durable. We need to develop comfort and courage to deal with the conflict and deal with the sin because our unity matters.
And on the other side of that conflict, there can be the opportunity for greater intimacy. Now, finally, in my last couple of minutes, I want to share a a proactive way of dealing with this. If Matthew 18 reflects a reactive posture to sin, you know, someone did this and then you take action, there's something that's even better than waiting. Better than waiting for confrontation from others, there's something that we can do proactively, and it's to ask for feedback. And this is not for the faint of heart. Don't merely hope that the watchmen and the watchwomen in your life will call you out when you're in error. I hate going to fast food restaurants and you go in the bathroom and it says, if our bathroom is messy, please call X, you know, da 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 or tell the manager. I, don't, I shouldn't have to be responsible for you cleaning the bathroom. You come in here and check it out. Be proactive. It's messy. You clean it up. And similarly, if I'm making a mess of my life, like, I want to take enough responsibility for myself that, that you don't have to work up the courage to come and tell me, but I'm actually asking you, how am I doing? Psalm 19 says, who can discern their own errors? I can't. Who can discern their own errors? We need others. Ryan Leak, in his book on personal development, lists some example questions of ways that we can ask others for feedback. Some of you are going to hate this list. What is it like to be parented by me? Only one person in this room can answer that question. <laughs> yeah. What is it like to be parented by me? What is it like to get emails from me? What is it like to get texts from me? What's it like to be on the other side of my Instagram comments? What is it like to be married to me? What is it like to be related to me? What's it like to be in meetings with me? What's it like to work with me? What's it like to work for me? What's it like, you ready? To be on the sideline of my kid's game with me. What's it like to be coached by me? What's it like to be on a team with me, to travel with me, to do holidays with me, to be on a date with me? What's it like to live next to me? What's it like to be my friend? What's it like when I correct you? And there are many, many other times in life where we don't need someone to come and confront us and we don't need to ask for the feedback because we already know what we've done. And the gospel compels us then when we're aware that we're the ones who have sinned against others, that we readily confess our sins. I see such great courage in the one who instigates the confession of sin to others. James 5.16, confess your sins to others and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's in the confession that there's healing. I think about all of 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light, bring things that are in the dark into the light, we walk in the light as he is in the light, what do we get? Fellowship with one another. If we bring these things into the light, it takes courage to truly confess. And this is what we do every week when we come to the communion table. I hope that for you it will never be just, um, just like muscle memory. I hope for you it, it will never be a rote thing. When we pray liturgies and, and, and use formal structure, we're using it like a, a vine holds on to a trellis, that we join our prayers, our intentions, our desires with these rightly ordered words, praying that they will be the cry of our heart. In a minute, we're going to pray a prayer of, of confession. 
asking the Lord to forgive us. The, the scriptures teach us when we come to the table, we're meant to consider, do I have a brother or a sister here who has something against me? We're meant to consider, are, are those with whom I need to reconcile? Are there those from whom I should ask for feedback? Is there anyone to whom I ought to apologize? We're never going to get this quite right. Conflict is going to be, conflict has been a part of the church from the very beginning. Almost all of the pastoral epistles, the letters are in response to some form of conflict. It's not in our perfection, but it's actually in our, conf in our confession and our reconciliation that we're able to show to the world that we are a community that is being shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. It's a community that's learning to reconcile with one another because we've learned what it means to reconcile to the God from whom we've been estranged. And God in Christ has laid down his life for us that we who were far off could be brought near and we who've been estranged from one another can be made into a new family. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you've modeled for us this relational patience and endurance with your disciples, that you modeled for us reconciliation with Peter, and I think you also bore in your heart the pain of not being able to reconcile with Judas. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd give us the wisdom and the courage and the discernment about others and about ourselves. Uh, that we might lean into conflict. Thank you that we don't have to rely on our own perfection. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And just as you've forgiven us generously, so we should forgive others generously, even ourselves. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you give us the courage and the grace to, to do better by each other, to not ghost one another, to not forget one another, to not be rude to one another, but to seek understanding to show honor, to show deference. As we come to the table today, Lord, we recognize that to be this kind of people requires a power sufficient to the task. And so we pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.